Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program from Radio New Zealand Sport. In the program this week, although New Zealand's among three countries to have delayed the arrival of their first Commonwealth Games athletes as officials scramble to clean up accommodation, it looks as if the Games will start on time on the 3rd of October. We'll hear from a champion New Zealander who's not planning to arrive in Delhi just before she competes and to leave as soon as she's finished. We'll also hear from her new coach, from the Southland rugby side's co-coach, and from a former All Black star as well as two top rowers a month out from the start of the World Championships at Lake Karapiro. To the Commonwealth Games first though, and although New Zealand, Canada and Scotland have delayed the arrival of their first athletes by four days, England sending a full team with the first group of 22 arriving Friday. Wales has also given the all clear, although their Olympic track cycling champion Geraint Thomas has withdrawn with three of his teammates. South Africa's also going. New Zealand's chef de mission, Dave Carey, says he was reluctant to embarrass India by going public with safety and hygiene concerns about the team's accommodation. But Curry says the Games Village was worse than anything he'd seen before and the organising committee was in denial so there was no choice. First to ask to be moved into another block of apartments and then to recommend that the athletes delay their arrival, affecting women's hockey, badminton and bowls who were due in this weekend. Meanwhile, the track and field athletes such as Commonwealth, Olympic and World Shot Put champion Valerie Adams are in training in Singapore. It's been a tumultuous year for Adams with a change of coach, a marriage breakup, and a run of losses to her main rival, Nadezda Ostapchuk. But she finished her European season well with a big win over the Belarusian at the Continental Cup and should be assured of a gold medal as she's the only Commonwealth athlete to have put the shot past 21 metres. However, Adams says she's not going to Delhi just for gold. She wants to win emphatically. And although she's pleased with the progress she's made since she made some changes to the way she puts the shot, she told me there's at least one potential threat in Delhi. Cleopatra Burrell from Trinidad and Tobago, whose personal best is 9.5 metres, so she's taking nothing for granted. I'm pretty happy considering everything that has happened. I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better ending to my European campaign than what I did um, achieve over there. So it's just a matter of looking forward and, and progressing from there. You said we wouldn't notice and, and most people wouldn't notice no. the, the technical changes yeah. that you have made. Yeah. So if you're watching from a distance when, you, when you're throwing, will it be obvious when you smile that you've, you've, you've nailed uh, the one you want? That's what most of the public look at is, look at is my reaction. Mm. Uh, most of it, and also, and also how far the shot's fl- um, flying. So so, I mean, that's, that's how you can tell if, if it's a big throw or not, I suppose. Now, speaking of how far, you, it was a pretty good effort in, in Croatia, mm-hmm. still a wee, wee bit below your personal best. What are you thinking that you would need to nail the, the gold medal in Delhi? Uh, more than 20 or a bit over 19? That, that all depends because you never, you, you, I, I never underestimate any other co- um, competitor that's out there competing. I mean, Cleopatra can very well come out and throw 20 metres, who knows? But it's a matter of it's one of those things that you just got to go out there and put on your best game face and go for it. Mm. Now, the, um, the, the world record is a long time set and yeah. probably in some dubious circumstances back in those days. So, as far as you're concerned, mm. you, you're looking ahead beyond Delhi, world champs, then yeah. London. So, yeah. so what, how far do you think you can go? 
So it's one of those things, those questions um, that you just got to put a question mark at the end of the question because you just never know. You just got to keep trading and you, you just got to be prepared to put in hard work and keep striving for for the best you could do. I mean, I ain't, I ain't looking at the world record because it's one of those things that were set back in yes, the late 1980s and whatever they did back then is, is whatever they did. But it's just a matter of, you just, I just, I just got to beat Val. As far as the, the Com Games, I was talking to another athlete um, last night about it and she, she said, well, a personal best isn't always necessary to, uh, to medal at the Commonwealth yeah. Games or any other games for that matter. But for, I guess from what you're saying, you're aiming to do that if you possibly can. You don't want to go out there and, and just come away with a medal. You want to come away with a commanding performance. I definitely want to, want, want to throw a big throw there and throw well. I don't want to go and, as I said, be complacent and, and just rely on a 19.5 metre throw to win. I really, really want to you know, be the one to um, have a big throw. You know, Season's best PB, I'll be over the moon with that. I mean, and also to break the championship record. I mean, that, that's my goal. I'm interested in, in your view that you're there for the duration compared with some others who are yeah. c- coming in for their event and leaving shortly thereafter. Yeah. That says a lot about, I guess, your personal philosophy that, that it's you're part of the Commonwealth Games team. Is yeah. that how you see it? Oh, definitely. I mean, and I've always done that. I've always been the jolly wog that goes and sits at the side of the street where the marathon's happening after I compete or the walk or the 50k walk, which is, you know, long and sometimes boring, but... I sit there right to the end and support and, and support the teammates because we're there as as one big team and, and, and we're there to support each other. I know that the security risk, et cetera, et cetera, the people are going to be going, but, you know, that's up to them. Valerie Adams' new coach says the changes they've made are intended to increase her speed in the throwing circle. Didier Pape says that's as important as raw power and agreed with me that New Zealand's junior world champion, 15-year-old Jack O'Gill, is a good example of that after he beat older and much bigger opponents in Canada. You are absolutely right. Uh, Jack O'Gill is the best example of what can be achieved and without the usual look of the shot putter with a huge people and heavy and strong. So uh, it's, it just shows that speed is the most important factor in the throw. And when you can develop speed and use it, then you have to, go to achieve very good results. So what changes in the training program to achieve that? I mean, what, what you all have a vision of, or a picture of what a, a thrower does to condition themselves, but what about the actual speed, more running work, more road work, or is it, is it speed in a different sense? It's a bit of, a bit of that, but uh, basically it's more what we call reactive strength. So instead of just pushing a bar and pumping iron, you try to, to go for reaction and, and more solicitation on the nervous fibers, on the muscular fibers. So you go for real reacting, reacting like a jumper. I would take the, the best example for the work we are doing is a triple jumper. So you, you react from the ground. And uh, that's exactly the same we are doing, trying to do it in a shot put. She has to react on the ground and transfer the speed to the shot. Now we all know for various reasons it's been a difficult year for Valerie but she finished off strongly in Croatia at the Continental Cup with that throw so how far away is she do you think from her personal best? We were expecting throw over 20, uh, 2050 at the end of the season she has done a bit better uh, now we are looking for I cross a finger, um, one metre more next year would be a great, great achievement. And she needs to throw over 21 metre if she wants to really uh, be the strongest and the best at the next uh, World Champs. How hard is it for, or would it be for her to achieve something of, would it be unrealistic to expect her to achieve that sort of a throw in the conditions in New Delhi? 
given the heat and the humidity and so forth? No, honestly not. It would be really <laughs> such a, uh, a good surprise. But uh, we would be happy in uh, Delhi if she can first uh, break the game's record, which is uh, uh, she did in uh, 1966, uh, two years ago. Uh, so if she can break this record and throw over 20, anything over 20 will be bonus. And the, the Commonwealth Games... Well, not only the Commonwealth, but also Olympics, quite often it's, you don't need a personal best to do well there. Quite often, I mean, John Walker won the gold in the 1976 Games in the 1500 metres, well below his best. So in theory, Valerie could still be below, well below her best and still come away with a gold medal. She could, but uh, everybody expects her to, to do more than a gold medal. They, they want uh, not only the win, but the way she will do and she will win. So she will try her best, honestly, and she, she wants to achieve a good performance because uh, it would be a, a double satisfaction. It was interesting that she said she's going to stay and, and support the others right through the games. That's a, a nice attitude to have when others are popping in and popping out. I think you are right and uh, Valerie is not only uh, a shot putter, she's a champion and she's somebody which uh, is proud to represent her country and to be part of the team and uh, that's make her also stronger. That's Valerie Adams' new coach, Didier Pape, and this is Extra Time, a web-only sports show from Radio New Zealand Sport. Rugby now, and five days after Stadium Southland's roof collapsed at the start of a storm which has caused massive stock losses, the region's had a welcome morale boost, with the Stags retaining the Ranfurly Shield. As their captain, Jamie McIntosh, said afterwards, the 9-6 win mightn't have been pretty to watch, but it was still an absorbing contest, with the hosts achieving their first Ranfurly Shield win over Auckland and their first win over the Blue and Whites in the Provincial Championship. They did it with outstanding defence, sealing an emotional victory with a late penalty goal from Robbie Robinson. And co-coach David Henderson told Mary Wilson he was a lot more relaxed the morning after. It's nice uh, after 39 years to, to get a, a win off Auckland, which you know um, is something special to, to treasure, I guess. And which looked like winning. People have talked about dominating territory and possession. I think Auckland would uh, have that in the bag and again we're getting used to it week after week in regards to the fact that we've um, had to defend our own goal line and uh, yeah it's not easy being a coach you know, you, I think I need to have some, some pills to take to, to keep my heart rate down during the game coaching this team <laughs> Yeah three all half time what was that like? Oh you know was, to be honest we were a wee bit concerned because again we had the wind in the first half and, you know and uh, Auckland played pretty well into that wind and you know, again, they, um, Matt Burkus was their first five, and he was a very good goal kicker in the second half. So, so yeah, there was some concerns, but I guess the, the you know we still had confidence in ourselves that we'd go out there and, and compete in, in those conditions last night. Just how brutal were they? Uh, yeah, they were. They, again, it's you know, a very cold night, and you know we've had a lot of snow down here, and you know it was all cleaned off on Tuesday night by you know uh, our fans down here. There's about a hundred of them down there with wheelbarrows and that on Tuesday night, uh, taking four inches of snow off the ground. So. You know, and there was there was hail at times um, before the game, and uh, you know, very icy cold. So it wasn't, uh, I guess, conditions that Auckland boys would be used to. All right, and at halftime, what did you say to the team? Oh, it was more about just just working on. You know, we were under the pump in regards to um, you know Auckland attack, and it was about just shoring up our defence and trying to slow a bit of their ball down and at ruck time, and um, and also to get the ball in our hands and and put the pressure back on them. And, and at times we did that. Impenetrable defence is how it's being described. 
Yeah, you know, they're a hearty bunch of guys, very good mates down here, and you know, um, I've been asked the question why our defence is so good, and it's, I think it's more to do with the guys, you know, being great mates and wanting to play um, for each other and, and give 100% and, um, and I think that's the key to it. And a big morale booster for the locals. Yeah, it was. You know, I was, we spoke about that before the game. You know, Jamie McIntosh's dad's um, quite a big farmer down here and he's had, you know, uh, tremendous losses with lands and so forth. And not only him and a lot of farmers around Southland and you know, just not the farmers, but again, we lost our stadium last weekend. That's David Henderson talking to Mary Wilson and this is Extra Time, a web-only show from Radio New Zealand Sport. Still with rugby and the former All Black First Five, Andrew Mertens is a couple of matches into his latest French club season. Mertens played 70 tests between 1995 and 2004 and he's now playing for the third division side Bezier after two years in London and a couple of years with Toulon. The 37-year-old feels he still has a lot to offer even if it's at a slower pace and he told Barry Guy he's happy to be at Bezier, a club that has plenty of history. Eighties was the dominant French team. It won eleven titles, French championship titles, throughout the the seventies and eighties, and basically belted the hell out of anyone that turned up. And so they, off that they built what was to be the biggest and still is the biggest rugby-specific seated stadium in France. And they still have that, which is a hell of an advantage. And they've got a, a hugely passionate rugby town, rugby population here, and, and they they don't lack for uh, for supporters and. They're just nuts about rugby. So that, that's another advantage. They've sort of come on hard since sort of seven or eight years ago being in the, in the top grade in France. And uh, I encountered them two years with two different teams in the second division and then they, they got uh, dropped down a couple of years back, had one crack at getting back up, just failed with that last year. And But they're a, a fairly long-term project and obviously want to use the, the region and its history in rugby and, and, and the facilities that it's got to uh, to get back up into the elite. And I think it's... It's well within their, uh, their their reach. They've got a very, very good junior program, a lot of good young kids coming through. In fact, as the French do, they rank everything here. So the academy program at Bézier is ranked something like fifth in the country behind just behind big academies like Perpignan and uh, Toulouse and uh, Stade Francais and, and Clermont. So, I mean, that's pretty good. So they've got uh, you know the potential to do a lot of good things and, and certainly got the passion for it and the drive. So uh, third division, and uh, just putting this kindly, 37-year-old, does this sort of suit where you are, you know, perhaps, and in, in a bit of coaching? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I've never... I think it's something, as you get older, you end up almost taking a sort of a coaching role in, in your participation in a, in a team anyway in rugby, and I guess in any sport. It's not something I would have necessarily angled forward to get into coaching, and it's not necessarily something I'll directly go into here. Either they said... We're taking it year by year, which is uh, fairly realistic. It's 37, but I'm enjoying my rugby. I still feel like I, I, I can contribute, and certainly at this level. felt pretty good at the end of the last season, which was in the top 14. So, But at that stage, uh, I was probably looking at one-year sort of caretaker role options and contract-wise at maybe some top 14 clubs that were looking at signing younger guys in the future but hadn't quite found what they wanted yet. So covering a season there or looking at something like this, which was that they wanted to, to, to sign for a little bit longer, potentially longer, and, and look at the opportunity to you know, assess it year by year. And if I still felt up to playing, then, I mean, this year I'm only a, I'm a player. Next year they said, look, you know, if you want to keep on playing full on, then, then great. And if, if, if we still think you're up to it and you still feel up to it, then great. If not, you can downgrade your, your involvement playing-wise a little bit and, and move into either the coaching side of it or the administrative side of it as well. So... You know, there are opportunities to do that. I'm not exactly sure what I'd like to do or what I'd be any good at, but, uh, I mean, at the moment I'm just concentrating on the playing, which is good. And 
playing with a, a bunch of younger guys, which uh, tends to drag you along a wee bit in the slipstream, as, it, as I found playing in club rugby. You know, the, the times over the years I've had a chance to get back and play at Old Boys in Christchurch, and you know, it seemed to get younger and younger every year. And suddenly, uh, well, then again, I'm getting older and older, obviously. But I, I turned up here to Bezier in the at that stage, the, the granddaddy of the team was 32, and I've got five years on him now, so he's quite happy. Uh, again, just trying to be kind here, but you're probably just about a whole generation in front of most there, and you're probably, it's it's your name, I imagine. A lot of people perhaps uh, might not have even seen you play, you're prime for the All Blacks. Yeah, that's, well, that's right. I mean, I wouldn't have expected guys that I'm playing with to have necessarily even known who I was. It doesn't bother me one bit, but... Thanks to things like the PlayStation game, the Journal of New Rugby, which I was a part, which I was in the I was in the New Zealand team from whenever that dated from about ninety five or ninety six, I think. So um, they know, they know my name from there at least, which is they have quite a bit of a laugh about it. Even if he's a French commentator, has a bit of a stutter. So every time I touch the ball in the PlayStation game, he says Mertens. So the amount of times I've got that over the last three or four years is beyond count now. But yeah, it's right, and I don't I want to obviously. Bezier were quite happy to have, I guess, what they would call a name signing for this grade anyway. I guess they think it, it might give them a little bit of credibility in terms of the project. I think it's probably important in rugby as well that you need profile. But I, I like to think I'm, I'm paying my way on the field. And, and I never was really the, a sort of, you know, obviously any good as Dan Carter, but I never was a dynamic player, I guess, but even less so now. But I think there are things I can offer on the field as well, which, I, like I say, I still feel like I'm doing. And, and they do have a, a good bunch of youngsters and, and they hope, uh, I guess it's nice to have an old head or a couple of old heads there um, just directing the team around the field and we've got a, an English athlete, there are only three, uh, three foreigners in the team, if you don't count the Georgians of which there are, there are so many in France now that are not really even considered foreigners but uh, they're always front rowers normally. Um, but there's, a, there's an English halfback who's getting on and believe it as well, he's almost 30. <laughs> and we've got another New Zealander, Brian Milne, who was a Southlander and played New Zealand juniors or under-20s, whatever they're called, uh, a few years back. And so he's there in the midfield. But it's the first time I've been in a club where, you know, we haven't had the, half the number of the team being foreigners and speaking English. So it sort of feels really French now, more so almost than the last couple of years in terms of the rugby environment. So I'm enjoying that side of it as well. Is the opportunity now in France, because I read in a British newspaper recently that there's something like only seven New Zealanders, I think, in the English Premiership now. Um, I wonder whether they're moving away from there and, and perhaps more going towards somewhere in the continent. I guess France is a wee bit more attractive in terms of uh, the contracts. That There tends to be a little bit more money in France, probably. They do more things like look after you in terms of accommodation and a car than than the English clubs. They don't do that at all, really. And obviously the climate in certain places in France, it's hard to find a spot in England that would have the same decent sort of climate. So there are a number of attractions there. And funnily enough, it's probably easier now in France. I've just changed the rules to make it harder to have large amounts of foreigners in any one team. Funnily enough, the rule changes have made it easier for New Zealanders to come over. It used to be that you could only have two foreigners. But by foreigners, it basically meant Australians and New Zealanders because all the Europeans were counted as locals and whatnot. So there were two two spots up for grabs for New Zealanders, basically, and French teams. Now they've changed the rules and said, well, 50% have to be French, and the other 50%, uh, everyone, every nationality is lumped into that. So in theory, now you could have 15 or 16 New Zealanders in a French team. So the, the rule changes over in, in France have sort of worked in New Zealanders and Australians' favour in that regard. And I guess also just the chance to have a bit of a cultural adventure as well is, uh, is probably an attraction too, and especially guys who are 
feeling that their rugby time is, is coming to an end in New Zealand, maybe at the age of 28, 29. Uh, it's unfortunate that's the way it is these days. I don't, I don't consider late 20s old at all, but anyway, that seems to be the way it is. And they've, they've thrown everything into it for eight or nine years in rugby and have probably had the chance to have an OE like, uh, like a lot of New Zealanders like to take up in, in London or wherever. So, you know, it's a, it's a good chance for them to get out and about. And, and unfortunately, I think for New Zealand, in, in some positions, you're going to get guys who are playing the best years of their life overseas. When you think about halfbacks and, and, and first fives and, and front rowers, you know, the tight forwards who generally tend to mature in terms of their game, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And I think you, you look at a guy like Glenn Jackson, who played a number of years in New Zealand, then came across and probably had his best four or five years in, in rugby terms in the UK. And you can't begrudge him that, but it's just a bit of a shame that that's, that's the way it sort of happens. So you get to that age, I think, in New Zealand and... Like I say, you, you like to look for, for something a wee bit different, some, you know, an extra sort of an adventure, and, and France and Europe certainly provides that. That's Andrew Mertens talking to Barry Guy, and we'll hear Mertens' thoughts on the All Blacks in the second part of his interview next week on Extra Time. It's just over a month from the start of the World Rowing Championships at Lake Karapiro, where there are new facilities and crowds of up to 20,000 are tipped. The facilities include a special start for use at the 1,000 metre mark for the adaptive or disabled athletes, so they too can finish in front of the 10,000 seater grandstand, like the elite rowers such as Hamish Bond and Eric Murray, who are aiming to defend their men's peers title. Here's Bond, then Murray, talking to Andrew McRae about their build-up for the championships. We haven't had any hiccups really since we've been back. Probably starting to give our longest continuous training period since we've been in the pier Beforehand I sort of struggled with injuries but we've changed our program, our training program a little bit and it seems to be working really well. I think we're the fittest we've ever been. Sure of you here. Yeah, like just as Hamish said, um, you know, we've had a great run and you know, structuring a little bit of difference worked out quite well and we get a few eyes from the rest of the team because they don't think we're doing as, as much as what they are but in, in matter of fact I think we're doing a lot more. Just the intensity keeping it up and the next little period is basically just speed work and sharpening up and that's where we'll get back to being really sharp and getting that quickness you know it's been a it's been a long time between races and you know mid-July was the last time we raced so it's going to be interesting to see how it all pans out in this next little bit. As the preparation for this world championships is it different from previous ones? It's different in the fact that it's uh, a lot later in the year so we've had a big training block in between the final European World Cup and then World Champs usually we've got about five or six weeks between them whereas this time it's been about 14 weeks so that's given us a lot longer time to prepare and I mean for us I think it's really been making sure that we keep the intensity up every single training session because with that long block it's quite be quite easy just to sort of fall into a lull and let it drift by whereas we've really tried to go out and make each sort of session count and we know if we do that to the best of our capabilities you know whatever happens at the end of the day we've got to be pretty happy with how we've trained. Is it easier training on your home turf? Um, well, with the storm at the moment, no, it's actually been terrible. But it is actually because when we were overseas, we were basically in a training camp environment. And so we get up in the morning, breakfast, go training, come back, have a bit of a nap, go back down training, you know, come back, and that's it. So you sit in a hotel room basically your whole period you're overseas, and, you know, you get half a day off here and there all over the show. And while we've been here, you've got the luxury of being home, so it's a little bit more comfortable and not in a living out of a suitcase sort of environment. Uh, and, you know, it's Carapero throws up a hell of a lot of conditions and 
being able to row in those conditions at different periods of the day as well because we could either be racing in the morning for heats or semi-finals or later in the day and then finals are around you know one two o'clock in the afternoon so being able to row at those times has been really good so we've been able to just get a gauge on everything and um, and so I think it's a definite advantage to the team. For competition, the two guys from the UK and their team, um, how are you feeling about that? Yeah, the British-Kiwi rivalry, well, it's set to continue and, you know, it's, it's just a, a matter of people doing this for a reason, you know, they want to win. We're doing it because we want to win and everybody else around, you know, the whole New Zealand team wants to do it so they can win and get up on the dice and... So, you know, GB, Andrew and Peter, you know, they're top two guys. They, they want to go in the pair. And Great Britain's had a great history of pairs with Steve Redgrave and Matthew Pinson. Sir Steve and Sir Matthew, I should say, racing and, and winning the pair. So these guys want to continue that legacy. You know, we've been the ones standing in their way at, at this stage. And, uh, you know, I, I hope we can keep standing in their way. But we don't know who else is coming from other countries as yet. And I know there's some uh, pretty quick pairs from other places around the world, Greece and Italy's got their top two guys in the pair, so basically we've just got to wait and see on the day who turns up, who's there and who wants to win. And I suppose it's like any competition, there's always could be a surprise on the day. Exactly, and uh, you know we turned up to the World Cup in 2009 and everyone's thinking, oh yeah, here's these New Zealand guys, um, hadn't really known where we were from and, and we blitzed it. And so you know we could have a crew, like a new combination from America or something, come through and be outstanding so we actually don't know at this stage what's going to turn up so we've just got to wait and see. I guess having the competition here at Karapiro you've got that hometown advantage if there is such a thing but I guess the expectations from the the local people is going to be high too. Yeah it will be and with that success we've had over the last few years people will expect that to continue Um, but in saying that you know it's a big opportunity for us usually we're racing in Europe so to have the opportunity for our family and friends who have supported us for however many years we've been in the sport get the opportunity to come and see us race an international regatta it is a big opportunity for us to give something back. What's the pressure going to be like for you guys (coughs) over the next four weeks as we get really close to the, the big event? I think we'll really try and keep out of it and not really pay too much attention, I think, will be the safest way to go. If you buy into it, I think, too much, you know, you can sort of let it swallow you up. So we'll, I mean, yeah, we'll take it as it comes, but we'll really just concentrate on what we can do, I think. Looking at the uh, facilities out there, are you impressed with what's going on? Yeah, it's, it has. It's um, been a, a big development here at Carapiro with the, the new buildings and the grandstands looking great. You know, it's... Um, We we could be in front of sort of 20,000 people on any given day, which is, that's a phenomenal, not only by New Zealand standards, but by any international rowing event, I think that would be equal or more than any crowd we've ever rowed in front of. So if the New Zealand public comes out and supports it, it's going to be a great atmosphere. And I think, you know, they said 78 is the most memorable world champs in history. And I think for the current generation, we could repeat that that sort of atmosphere and, and historic event. Well, it's going to be, the, the, I think, the single biggest sporting event New Zealand's seen since, I think, the 1919 Commonwealth Games. Do you think people out there realise just how big it is going to be? No, I, I actually don't. I think this, this last month build-up, we're going to have a lot more media coverage and everything, and it's just, you know, you hear it on the radio now and you see it on TV and in the papers, so it's going to be bombarded in the next little while, and as it gets closer to the event, I think that's when really people will pick up and say, man, I think we should get down to that, and... 
it's not outrageous. It's actually a pretty cheap day out for anyone, and you know I'm pretty sure kids under 12 are free, so you know the family can come along and, and watch the the racing. There's a hell of a lot to do, and it is one of these things that's going to set a legacy. 1978 set the legacy for Karapura, and that's when they put all the infrastructure up, and now the infrastructure's been upgraded again for 2010. So, you know, hopefully this will be a memorable occasion for New Zealand sporting history and. You know, we're the ones out there <laughs> with the country on our backs and, and we just really want to do ourselves proud, but everyone else as well. And that legacy from the event will then help young guys coming up? Oh, absolutely. You know, Rowan New Zealand's flourished in the last 15 years since the 80s when we had the eights and, and winning world titles and, you know, had good fours, crews winning at the LA Olympics and, you know, we had a lot of medals coming through and in the last 10 years we've had just a good roll-on effect from Rob Dell and from the Twins and, and it's stemming into Mahe and to ourselves. Mm. So, you know, there's all these crews up and coming. You know, we've had the best junior and under-23 results we've ever had consistently for the last four or five years. So New Zealand is becoming another powerhouse in world rowing again. We're consistently top three in the middle tables and points. So, you know, we're right up there and, and that's where we want it to stay. That's Hamish Bond and Eric Murray talking to Andrew McRae. The Englishman Eric Murray is talking about our Pete Reid and Andy Triggs-Hodge. This is Extra Time, a web-only show from Radio New Zealand Sport, and that's the show for this week. Feedback's welcome via sport at radionz.co.nz. You can get the latest sports news anytime on our website, while we'll be back with the next web-only Extra Time show next week. I'm Murray Williams. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.